When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, it's Lon Seibin. It's time once again for your weekly wrap-up. And this week we're going to be talking all about antibody testing for COVID-19. I got a test, I'll tell you the results, and we're going to bring on some guests who are experts in this field to better inform us about the testing that many of us will soon have. Let's get to it. Now, there's a story behind why we're talking about antibody testing. Uh, Last week on the wrap-up, I mentioned I came home from CES in mid-January feeling very sick. In fact, this is what I looked like at the Baltimore airport as I was waiting four hours for my connecting flight. Uh, Southwest had some problems that day, and the longer I sat in that airport, uh, the worse I fell. And by the time I got home at like 1.30 in the morning... I was running over 103 fever. I think I was like 103.5 when I finally got a thermometer in my mouth to check. Uh, And I was able to manage the fever over the course of the week with Tylenol and and stuff, but uh, it didn't go away. And I had a bit of a cough and I had all of the exhaustion and all the other things that people are talking about uh, related to COVID-19. But at the time, I didn't think anything of it because this was before it was spreading, or at least we thought before it was spreading around the world and I thought I just came back with the flu or something. But some weird things started happening around me during this period of time. People who were stopping by the house were getting sick a few days later. A couple of kids that my my kids play with were getting sick and their parents got sick and it kind of spread around to the point where people were starting to wonder maybe I had brought it back from CES Uh, which wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility given the fact that uh, well over 10,000 people from China attend CES and there were a good number from Wuhan, especially where I was hanging out for a good portion of the show. Uh, So I've been trying to get my hands on an antibody test or at least get tested to figure out if I did in fact have this because it would certainly uh, make uh, things a little bit easier for me and those around me to know if we had it or not. And I've Got in touch with a lab out of Massachusetts, not far from where I live, called KBMO Diagnostics. Uh, they are currently doing blood draw testing, uh, but they're in the process of validating a finger stick test that you can do at home. Now, the test is not processed at home. Uh, you take the uh, finger lance thing, prick your finger, put your uh, blood drops on a card, and then you mail the card back to them, and then they tell you a couple days later, Uh, whether or not you have the antibody. Uh, And they are validating right now that finger stick test. And I was able to get into their validation study. Uh, So they did the finger stick test and they did a blood draw from me. Actually, I had arranged it with a phlebotomist to get the blood draw portion. Uh, So I essentially had two tests done uh, to validate whether or not their finger stick test is delivering the same results that they were getting from a full phlebotomist blood draw. Uh, The too long didn't read on this is that I tested negative. So I did not have COVID-19. Some of the people who got sick after seeing me did get tested for flu. They were negative for flu. 
Uh, so this must be some other thing. A lot of the folks in the industry call it a fever of unknown origin. So uh, it looks like I'm going to be locked up here for a while longer because I am still vulnerable to COVID-19. And likely all of those around me who got sick got something else other than COVID-19 and are also vulnerable too. Uh, now, I wanted to go into detail on this antibody topic, and I thought, why not bring on the folks from the lab uh, to have them tell us all about it? So we're going to do that right now. So joining me now is James White, who is the CEO and owner of KBMO Diagnostics in Massachusetts, not far from where I was. I was very persistent with him this week to get my uh, blood to him, which I did. Uh, so thank you for letting me be a part of your validation study. Uh, can you tell us a little bit my about pleasure. the lab? Because right now I'm hearing from a lot of viewers from my video last week that there's a lot of like fly-by-night testing going on out there. So why don't you give people an idea as to what your lab is about why you should go to a lab for this test versus just doing it yourself and give us some little background on that. Perfect. That's a great question. So um, I guess four weeks ago, we were a food sensitivity company and we were running samples in our high complexity lab um, here in Massachusetts. Um, and then obviously, like most of us, the world changed. Um, and so what we thought we'd do is rather than just sit there with that infrastructure of a clear high complexity lab, but co but contact some of the um uh, groups that we've worked with around the world, see if we can find a solution in terms of an antibody test. And so what we did was we worked with, um, we have labs in Shanghai and Beijing, and they both recommended the same antibody test. So we brought that in-house, validated it in our high-complexity lab, and also put in place 6,000 phlebotomists around the U.S. so that people could, they didn't have to go to their physician. That test could then be done at home by, um, it's, it's ordered by a physician, and then um, the, the patient gets a phlebotomist coming to their house to do the blood draw, or if the physician is still open, then obviously they can go to the uh, physician's office. So the idea was phase one, enable people to be able to get a test done easily at home versus having to go to physicians if the physician was closed. Um, the, chip, the test that we've chosen has been run on over 2 million patients already. Um, we have a number of peer-reviewed journal articles showing how well it worked. Um, we've now run over 3,000 patients here in our lab, and it's working extremely well. Uh, the next stage, which is the kind of validation that you helped very kindly uh, take part in, is the finger stick, and we're hoping to get that launched within the next week, 10 days. And so the idea there is that you won't need the phlebotomist. The patient can, um, we can mail out or overnight to them um, the test. They can do a finger stick do that at home and then send that back. And then we send the results electronically to the provider and then they can get them back to the patient that way. And, and can you define what a high complexity lab is? Are there certifications that you have to go through to be called? Absolutely, so exactly. So it's a federal and a state level um, validation processes that we have to have. We're inspected by both those groups on an annual basis to make sure that any tests that we bring up is validated under specific protocols that they agree to. So again, it gives us a way of making sure we can run a test which is validated uh, in those in those either federally or state level. And so that's what we had. The test that we're operating is currently in with the FDA. So our hope is that that'll be FDA cleared under the EUA guidelines, hopefully in the next coming weeks. So the idea is it was the first test validated by the Chinese FDA. We've had 2 million patients run on it. It's now been validated in our lab. We've run over 3,000 patients. And now we're looking for that kind of final gold standard of the FDA um, approval on top of that. 
And, that, and then FDA approval, the EUA, as you mentioned, is, is that something that's kind of an emergency uh, authority at this point Absolutely. because of the, the situation? Exactly. So normally, and I guess the FDA are doing a great job getting these out. But as you can imagine, I think they've got a, a backup of about 70 approvals at this point. So I think, you know, they're being asked to work three times as hard uh, in half the time with the same number of people. So I think, you know, they're definitely doing a great job of trying to get these things through. But there's obviously a limited resource there. But I think the whole idea about the EUA process is once you've submitted, then it gives you an ability to be at least offering the testing. And again, I think the U.S. is beginning to catch up on that in terms of getting as many tests done as possible to kind of follow in the footsteps of Germany and some of the other countries, South Korea, who've done a very nice job of getting as many tests done as possible to identify which patients are positive and which ones are negative to try, which I think is what we're all trying to get to, is get everyone back to work um, from where we're at now in, in this kind of lockdown mode. Yeah, I just want a haircut. That's what I want. Uh, so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that'll happen this happen soon. Um, Absolutely. And now people can get the, the phlebotomist blood draw test now. So if, if somebody wants that now, how would they get that? So they'd have to get their, um, their provider to register. So they'd go on to our website, which is www.kbmodiagnostics.com. There's a large button for the physician to press, which enables them to register. They get a physician registration code. They get a link for the patient to order the test and also a link for the patient to order phlebotomy. So that gives them an easy way just to send that email out to any of their patients who are interested for them to then order the testing themselves. Got it. All right. So now um, you have another person you want me to talk to um, who's, I believe, a scientist. So, so tell us yeah, about the, the, uh, uh, Thankfully, there's a very large brain behind the operation and it's not me. Otherwise, we'd be in real trouble. <laughs> so um, Dr. Dorval has an extensive experience of working with infectious diseases for 30 plus years. Um, he was uh, a member of the uh, WHO Committee on Vaccine uh, and Diagnostics and has been working with a number in, with a num number of other pandemics, including the HIV um, back in the 80s. So again, he has a lot of experience in this space. So when we were looking to bring in this testing, um, clearly the fact it had been run on 2 million patients, it was the first test to be approved by the Chinese FDA was important. But frankly, for me, the gold standard is that Brent feels very comfortable running it. So again, he's got a lot of experience of seeing tests, good and bad, over a number of years, in, in different infectious disease areas. So again, his kind of uh, tick in the box was a very important step for us as an organization to really move forward. So again, we've been very fortunate to have him around anyway. He invented our food inflammation test, uh, but then to get his, uh, his you know, significant input on this testing and us launching it um, has been very important. So on that, let me hand over to Brent uh, and uh, you can ask um, some of the more detailed questions on the science and the technology that uh, that lays beneath, as it were. All right, I'm joined now by Dr. Brent Dorval, who is the chief scientist at KBMO. And I wanted to talk uh, now a little bit about some of the technical sides of this. Now, granted, our audience are, are not biologists. I took biology in, in college. I did okay, but it's been a while. Mm -hmm. um, why don't we talk about first what you're testing for? Because it's not just one antibody, it's two. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. So we're measuring uh, IgM and IgG. So IgM comes up uh, early and IgG comes up after. Uh, people have looked at this pretty carefully. Uh, the recent Lancet article um, uh, is a very, very good uh, reference um, and kind of the roadmap for antibody production um, 
for this particular coronavirus. So uh, what happens is IgM comes up around uh, around maybe eight eight days or ten days as strong as it will, and then IgM, I mean IgG, follows uh, on maybe about twelve to fifteen days later. What they've shown is depending on the number of viral particles you've exposed to or the rate of replication, um, it could be a little, if you had a lot of virus exposure, it comes up a little quicker. And if it's a mild infection, a little later. So the basic test measures IgM and IgG against the nucleoprotein of coronavirus. So the SARS-CoV-2 or coronavirus-19. And it is the nucleoprotein. And the reason we use that particular protein is it comes up the earliest and the response is the strongest. There's several other prominent proteins on the coronavirus. Number one is the spike protein, and that's where the virus gets its name. So you have a circular virus. It's maybe 100, 125 nanometers, maybe 150 nanometers in diameter. And it has these spikes that, like a sea urchin, all around it. The, the quills. And uh, what it does is it gives the name coronavirus because it looks like a corona. So that's called the S protein, spike protein. You have the membrane protein, which is a very, very uh, prominent protein in the virus, uh, and very uh, prevalent, is high concentration. Then you have the hemagglutinin esterase, which is much like influenza and HIV and some of the others. And uh, also you have the envelope protein. But none of these proteins come up as early or as strong as nuclear protein. So if you want to detect the earliest uh, infection and have the best opportunity, you're going to pick the uh, protein that um, has the most antibody produced. So that's why we're um, using that. And what's important about it is uh, very, very specific for SARS-CoV, CoV-1, CoV-2. And it's what happens is it's a truncated version of the nuclear protein. So it excludes all the other common coronaviruses that cause the flu, that cause um, uh, things like um, rhinitis and those sorts of things, uh, colds, the common cold. So um, what I say is a lot of the other tests cross-react with about a half a dozen strains, the 229E, the OC63, and some of the others. Um, so what happens is the, the doctor runs the test, and he doesn't know if it's the common cold or if it's COVID-19. So it's kind of the doctor then or the healthcare professional, it's up to them to kind of pick the needle out of the haystack, meaning you've got all these other viruses it could be, but we can't differentiate those. Whereas our test is the needle in the haystack. We say, okay, doc, this is... Uh, specific for the SARS-CoV-2, so therefore your patient is exposed and has that particular infection. So it's much more specific, and I think because of that, it gives uh, the doctor much more information. So I've been reading about the virus mutating. You mentioned there was a couple of different strains that that you're able to detect with this particular test. Um, Is there a likelihood that perhaps the virus could mutate into something that you wouldn't pick up with this antibody test, or are you looking at a protein that perhaps doesn't change as much? Um, The latter. This particular nuclear protein is highly conserved. And then when you truncate it and just pull out a very specific region, it's even more highly conserved. So what that means is it's it, there is some point mutations in nuclear protein, 
but we've kind of worked around them to pick out the specific sequence that's the COVID-19 uh, SARS-2 uh, sequence. Um, if somebody was infected, let's say, in the early stage in January, do you think you can still detect uh, the antibodies now in April? Uh, SARS-CoV-1, which caused uh, infections uh, about, uh, oh, I don't know, about a decade ago or a little bit more, uh, what they have been able to do is detect IgG for SARS-CoV-1 uh, up to 12 years later. So I think it was the infection in 2004, I believe, that was SARS-CoV-1. Uh, the MERS was a little bit later. Um, so having said that, this virus is very, very similar to COVID-2. So it's not proven yet, but what I'm saying is they're probably going to be around a decade or more, and that's not uncommon uh, even in a variety uh, of viruses or even uh, certain bacteria. Uh, whereas the IgM, it goes up, it comes down to a very low titer, probably undetectable out there in a few months, but the IgG hangs around for quite some time. And um, in that particular phase, um, it, what happens is that most likely, most likely you're immune at that point. So you've been immunized the hard way, meaning you've gotten the infection, either asymptomatic or fully symptomatic with full-blown uh, symptoms. But nevertheless, you've been immunized by a live virus, live infectious virus. So uh, that's a pretty, um, uh, pretty severe way uh, to be immunized. But this test doesn't measure um, uh, immunity, but it meaning uh, if you're immune, but what it does is it will tell the healthcare profession, uh, professional that you've been exposed, that you've been infected, and that you've produced IgM early, IgM Ig, and IgG, or IgG later, more or less in the convalescent phase. So that's what it tells you. But kind of vita infra, if you're in the convalescent phase and you've survived this illness, most likely some of those antibodies are going to be neutralizing antibodies. And so you would te technically, if based on what we know of other diseases, you would be immune, but of course it's still early. We need to wait for all the tests and reports to come back and the studies yeah. to, to determine whether or not that is definitely the case, but most likely uh, that will likely be it. Um, and this doesn't detect active infection. And I think that's an important distinction here between when these tests that we hear about people going to the drive-through thing and getting swabbed, that's a very different yeah. test than what you have here. So can yeah. you describe the difference between the two? Yeah, the, 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 the test that you just described is the RT-PCR. So it's a real-time PCR. So what happens is that they pick up viral RNA. So what they do is they take a nasopharyngeal swab or an oropharyngeal swab, and they, they really jam it up your nose, twist it around a little bit, pull it out, put it in a transport solution, send that off to the lab, and they are looking um, for viral mRNA. And if they find it, that tells you that you're uh, uh, infected and you have live virus. Now, it's very, very, it's a, it's a tough procedure to do, not to mention it's not a very pleasant procedure. Um, so what happens is before COVID-19, it wasn't used real frequently um, so that the people uh, have to get up to speed in terms of their training. So they think that they miss a lot of uh, virus 
that they could otherwise detect with PCR just because of inexperience of the people taking the swab. The other thing is, is if it's not in the nasopharyngeal area, if it's in the lungs or someplace else, or it's not detectable, you're going to simply miss it. And there's a huge false negative rate with PCR. Now, not to say that it's not very valuable. It is. Early infection, very good. What's nice is if you can somehow couple it with antibody testing. And so it's possible that people that, that were very sick, that got tested for the, for the viral test, may, may, may have come back negative because of whatever reasons that you just specified. But if they go and get an antibody test, it might actually show that they did, in fact, have it. And what's the accuracy of the antibody test in, in the studies that have been done so far with this? Because you said it's been done a few million times now. Um, so there's obviously a lot of experience with this one. Uh, the the uh, sensitivity, meaning um, the, the number of clinically diagnosed infections that it picks up was 80, a little over 87%. Now, you've got a sample antibody in the right window. So if the clinician said, look, my patient has COVID-19 um, and he was PCR positive, you could be in that prodromal phase. So your patient's going to be negative for antibodies. So the 13% that were missed, I think at least many of those samples were probably in, in an early phase of the infection where you were experiencing symptoms for sure, but you had yet to produce the antibody. So what I stress with a lot of people is it's kind of, the sampling is kind of phase dependent and sometimes PCR and antibody are positive together and sometimes one comes before the other. So depending on the test you're running, you may get one and miss the other or get the antibody and, and miss the PCR. So you have to be a little careful there. Now the specificity was 100% in a small study of 202. So what happened was they had a small cohort of patients that were 202 patients that were clinically diagnosed as positive for this disease and then later proven to be so. And if you test them late enough in infection, CDC is recommending about 28 days now, around there. They were, it was 23 and I think it's out as far as 28 days now um, that you will pick up those people that have seroconverted. And if you've been infected and it's confirmed infection, you will seroconvert by about 28 days to IgG and that that will be detectable. So if somebody wants to get tested, they should probably probably wait a week after their fever has subsided. Even if they couldn't get a, a PCR test, this might be, be something to, to consider, right? But, but maybe give it a week until you're completely fever-free. Yeah, a week or even two weeks, yes. That's exactly what, what and again, the studies have shown that, a week or two uh, for sure. You know, one of the things that's fascinated me about the response to it from a public policy standpoint has been that we've been kind of reacting to this virus the same way we've reacted to the 1918 pandemic and all the other things before, because yep. we just don't know where it is. So we've been uh, socially distancing, doing the very simple, blunt uh, approach to things. Uh, now we are in a position with the ability to reproduce these, these tests at scale now, at least the antibody tests, that we might actually start to do something a little different in response to the virus. Um, as someone who works in this field, where do you see the future of testing going? You know, how, how can we speed this up and how can you scale this up so that 
when we have future outbreaks, we don't have the, the chaos that we've experienced uh, this time. I think people were uh, maybe overconfident in our ability to detect things at scale. Uh, we're now seeing that, yeah. that that's not the case. And what, what, where do you see the innovation going here uh, to try to, to, to more smartly handle these outbreaks in the future? It's going to take antibody testing to do that because that's how you're going to be able to determine whether these people have been exposed. And for sure, it's going to be a test that will measure a long-term out IgG. And, and that's kind of where this is going. So I see testing being large-scale IgG testing. And I think, I think um, rapid tests like the one offered at KBMO offers a huge opportunity because it's cheap, it's quick, um, uh, it's a simple blood draw, or uh, we're working on a finger stick, which should be out soon. Um, so uh, you can screen lots of, and it only takes 15 minutes. So you can screen a lot of people quickly and then put the epidemiology together to understand how this thing emerged, how it spread, and kind of come up with a plan. What do we do the next time? Because there will be a next time. And the best part now no is question. that we have, and we have the testing capability now, especially with, on the antibody side, to uh, have a yes. better picture. So you kind of you can kind of see where the end might be now, whereas before you were just guessing. And now we can actually collect the data. It's just going to take um, uh, some patience to uh, get us there on, on on part of the public, and uh, hopefully we can uh, get on the other side of this very soon. And, and finally, just your recommendation again is that if you if you had a fever, maybe wait two weeks before you order a test. Is that is that the advice? I would say two weeks, yeah, 10 days, 14 days, yeah. I would say that would be good, and, and for sure you're going to be, I, well, for sure. Nothing's for sure it, in biology. Right, but if you had it, you would. Most likely you'll at least be producing IgM at that point. It'll be detectable. And then what would have the doctor would say, okay, we've detected IgM. Uh, what we'll do is we'll wait another two weeks and maybe administer the test again. And by then you should be, if you're healthy and you're um, getting better, you'll move from IgM to IgG. And at that point, that's a very good, that's very, even though you may be still sick, if you're moving into the IgG, the convalescent phase, that, that's the best news a patient could have because that means most likely, most, most patients will get better. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Dorville, for your time today and to James as well. And thank you also for uh, uh, taking my blood and checking to see if I had it. I was, uh, I was, I appreciated the result. I was hoping it would have been positive so I could, I could have some peace of mind. Unfortunately, I'm going to keep myself locked up for a little bit longer, but uh, that's all good. So uh, thank you very much for your time today. All right. A pleasure. Thank you very much again to everybody else. So I want to thank the folks from KBMO Diagnostics for having me as part of their validation study and for their time today. Uh, clearly, antibody testing will be one of the ways that we can approach the response to this pandemic in a 21st century manner, and it's good to see those tests finally getting out at scale. Uh, but certainly, medical technology has a long way to go. A little quick anecdote here. As I was driving out to Massachusetts to deliver my sample, uh, I had a stop at a military checkpoint in Rhode Island. They are forcing every out-of-state car off the road uh, to be interrogated by a military police officer. It didn't take all that long. I just said, hey, I'm going to Massachusetts, and they waved me through. 
uh, but it wasn't very neighborly on the part of Rhode Island. I don't know what they're trying to accomplish. I didn't have to go through the checkpoint on the way back because my route took me through some back roads first and then out to the highway past wherever the other checkpoint was. Uh, So clearly it's more theater than purpose, but this is the kind of stuff we're dealing with today. Now this week's wrap-up is being brought to you by all of you, the viewers of this channel. And this week we have a bunch of people to thank. Uh, For Super Chats during our live stream, we have Chanflay98, Clean937 Samuel, Vinny T, Laji KGR, David Parker, and Brian Parker. I don't believe they're related, but I want to thank everyone for their Super Chats. Uh, We also have some new supporters on the channel. They include John Bailey and Richard Schneider, who contributed via Patreon. And then on the Google Membership Program, we added Your Drive, Michael, Matthew Lane, and Sean. So I want to thank all of you who contributed to the channel this week, along with everyone who's been contributing on an ongoing basis. And I want to thank all of you who watch on a regular basis, too, because all of those things equal channel growth. Now, if you want to support the channel... You can. You can go to lawntv slash support and make a monthly or a one-time contribution. We also support the YouTube membership program, so you can contribute directly via the join button, which is located right below this video. Now, this week on the channel, we did a bunch of live streams. Uh, we were setting up the new Blink Mini indoor security camera, and I shot a review of it. That took a lot longer than I thought it would. We had some technical problems as well that uh, got resolved with my recording equipment. We also had an evaluation session of the new A10 UC9020, which is an all-in-one video switcher and streaming device. Uh, So you can see me tinkering around with that. We're going to have a more uh, condensed review coming up, hopefully a little later this week or next. And then last night, I set up a vMix workflow Uh, vMix is video production software that uh, pretty much does everything my TriCaster is doing. And I wanted to see if it might be a good alternative to the TriCaster should the TriCaster stop working. My TriCaster is almost uh, six years old this year, uh, so it's starting to get a bit long in the tooth, and I'm starting to see some things failing on it. Uh, It's not a bad product. It's just been used heavily for the last five or six years. I haven't swapped out the hard drives or anything else like that. So I thought I would just set up vMix and see how it works. And guess what? This whole show was shot with vMix today on my Lenovo gaming laptop, and it seems to be working pretty well. So I am really impressed so far uh, with how vMix is working, and I might be doing more with it uh, as the weeks progress here. So stay tuned for that. Uh, We didn't have anything on the Extras channel this week. I do have some stuff to upload this week. I hope to get to that soon. And then on the main channel, we looked at a pluggable DIY NVMe SSD enclosure that's toolless. That was pretty cool. Uh, we also checked out the new Acer Swift 3, which is a uh, pretty, rel- pretty reasonably priced laptop with Thunderbolt 3 built in and a 10th generation i5 processor. And then I also pushed out the live replay of the uh, live stream that uh, Smoke Monster and I did with the Mister. We were playing around with the Mister on a CRT television. If you missed the stream, you can find all of that down below in the master playlist. So coming up this week, we got a couple of things that I already shot and are ready to go. The first is our monthly sponsored video from Plex. Uh, this week, we're going to look at uh, two new apps they released for mobile devices. One manages your Plex server from the phone, which wasn't something you could do very easily up until now. Uh, and they also have a great new music player that we'll be exploring as well. So stay tuned. That will be coming up next. Uh, we also will have the review of the new Blink Mini uh, from Amazon. I'm going to upload this to Amazon probably first so you can find it 
on the product listing uh, within the next day or two. And it will also be pushed out to you subscribers via YouTube a little bit later this week. I also got in a 17-inch laptop from Lenovo. This is their uh, gaming laptop. It's a Legion, but it's the, I believe, the Y540. So we looked at the 740, which is what I'm using right now to run the stream. Uh, This is a slightly lower-cost version, but it's got a nice big screen, and we'll be taking a look at it. Uh, And I think you might be able to start finding these at some pretty good prices as the weeks progress here. And if I'm feeling brave, I may actually get to this Flowbee stream where I finally cut my hair. I've been unable to get a haircut because of the current situation, and it's starting to become a bit hard to manage. So I bought a Flowbee, and I'm just going to need to work up the courage to publicly cut my hair with it. So let me know if you want to see that. That might be coming up soon. Uh, If you want to keep watching what I do and get notified when the Flowbee comes out, you can click on the bell so that you never miss anything. Uh, We also have other channels you can find me on, uh, and you can see them all on screen there. Uh, Definitely follow me on Amazon also on the Amazon shop link at the bottom because we do go live on Amazon when we go on YouTube. And a lot of viewers are saying the quality of the stream is better on Amazon than it is on YouTube, so you might want to find me over there instead. Uh, We have a lot of different ways to engage with the channel, so you can sign up for our very infrequent email list at lon.tv slash email. Uh, We have our Facebook group, which is growing every day. It's such a great place to hang out, Uh, so join us there. And then we have my store, where I sell previously used items that we reviewed here on the channel. And if you want to get notified when we have new things to uh, buy on that store, you can go to lon.tv slash store alert, and you'll get an email every time we add something. Uh, So definitely check that out if you are looking for some used stuff. I haven't added anything in a while. I'm hoping to catch up a little bit on some of the housekeeping around here because things are a mess. And I do have some things to list like that Samsung tablet we reviewed the other day. So stay tuned and uh, definitely sign up for that list. So that is going to do it for this week's weekly wrap-up. A little different than usual, produced in an entirely different way from a tech standpoint. So let me know. Uh, how this worked for you, because I'm very impressed with the stability of vMix, uh, especially given that I'm just running it on a laptop right now. And I'm going to try to maybe do the whole week on vMix and see how everything works. And if it does work, I'm probably going to build a PC to run my production workflow moving forward. So lots more to come on the channel here. Thank you all for your support. Please stay safe and healthy. Keep those hands washed and uh, socially distance yourself as best you can. That's going to do it for now. Until next time, this is Lon Seidman. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters, the Four Guys with Quarters podcast, Tom Albrecht, Rick Vestudo, Chris Allegretta, and Kalyan Kumar. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more.
And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.